the overall topic, not surprisingly, since we're in the month of Elul, is the high holiday service, themes, prayers, and um, so I thought a good place to begin was one of the Torah readings for Rosh Hashanah. Now, in terms of Rosh Hashanah, it's important to understand that um, there's enormous flexibility in a certain sense when it comes to choosing the readings for Rosh Hashanah. And the reason for that is very simple because the Torah says virtually nothing about Rosh Hashanah. So there's one line or a couple of lines in the list of the days with special sacrifices and it's mentioned very briefly in the list of holidays. And apart from that, it's never mentioned again. Not in the Chumash. There's one story in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah where it comes up. It's not called Rosh Hashanah. It's actually very strange. But apart from that, Rosh Hashanah is conspicuous by its absence. There's very little said about Rosh Hashanah. Which leaves the rabbinic tradition a lot of space to uh, hand us, dictate us, to us what we are to read on Rosh Hashanah. That is to say, two days of Rosh Hashanah, two Torah readings, two days of Rosh Hashanah, two Haftarot as well. So it's interesting in terms of what they chose. You get some sense about how the rabbinic tradition is trying to shape the days of Rosh Hashanah. So one of the Haftarot of Rosh Hashanah, of course, is the story of Chana, which is the very first chapter of Sefer Shmuel, something to think about is why in fact uh, that was the choice why is Rosh Hashanah uh, chosen as the uh, why is the story of Hannah chosen as one of the Haftarot of Rosh Hashanah so maybe get to that in a couple of minutes but um, let me just start with just some thoughts about why perhaps the story of Hannah in this translation it's on page 571 and it ends on 574 in the middle of the page get to the story of Khan in a minute but the story of Khan briefly as shall we all know is that Khan is one of two wives married to uh, Elkanah his lineage is given to us in the very first chapter of Shmuel on page 571, lengthy lineage of Elkanah. And we're told he has two wives. One is named Penina, and one is Chana. Penina has children, Chana does not. That's how the story begins. And the focus of the first chapter will be Chana's desire to have a child or children and her prayer uh, in which she prays for a child prayer is answered and at the end of the uh, after she's granted the child in the second chapter we have another prayer and that prayer is the first ten verses of, cha- of chapter two so the story of Hannah essentially uh, is connected to two kinds of prayer the first is a request and that's in chapter 1. The actual request is very brief. The, um, the whole request is found in one verse, chapter 1, verse 11. 
And of course, the, pray, the prayer of so-called Thanksgiving, if you want to call it that, as we'll see, it's a very peculiar prayer of Thanksgiving, but that's ten verses in chapter two, and the conclusion of the Haftorah for, for Rosh Hashanah. So why is this the Haftorah that is chosen for Rosh Hashanah? First of all, we should simply point out that the Haftorah is related to the Torah reading. The Torah reading is Vashem Pokadet Sarah. God redeemed or remembered Sarah. Sarah gives birth to Isaac. That's the Torah reading for the first day of Rosh Hashanah. And the Haftorah is God remembering Hannah. In each case, the person who is remembered, interesting, is a woman. In each case, it centers around childbirth, maybe around continuity, etc. Let's, let's focus our attention more on the story of Chava. So let's, let's, I'd like to begin with the Thanksgiving prayer of Chana that's found in this translation on page 573. Just to take a look at this prayer of Thanksgiving, presumably for having been granted a child. When you read these ten verses, beginning on 573, and over to 574, take a look at them very briefly, one obvious question comes to mind. Are you familiar with these verses? When I was a kid, we had to memorize them, actually. Um, So when you read the ten verses, one obvious point comes to mind. It's very simply this. What kind of a prayer is this for a woman who just had a baby? I mean, virtually it says virtually nothing about having a baby. There's one half line there that the barren woman has given birth to seven. But apart from that, one could never imagine that this prayer is in any way connected to childbirth or, or the story of Hannah in general. In fact, when you read this poem, uh, what comes through is something very different. Nothing to do with childbirth, but it, what comes through in the poem is the way God either is governing or in Hannah's thinking should govern the world. And what's very striking about it, if you take a look at it, um, take for example beginning in verse 3. Al tabu tidabru gvoha gvoha yetzei atak mitichem. Ki yel deyot Hashem v'lo nitkenu avilo. So don't talk with pride. Kind of against talking with say, lofty pride, with arrogance. God's actions are measured. And the poem now continues to describe what God either does or what she wants God to do. That's not clear. Keshet giborim chatim. So the, 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 the bows of the mighty are broken. V'nichshalim, but those who falter, az ruchayu, are girded with strength. So the contrast between the mighty, the strong ones, whose power is broken, but the, the weak ones, the ones, the fallen ones, the stumbling ones, they're girded with strength. Next verse. Sveim balech and niskaru. Those people that once had a lot of food, niskaru have to hire themselves out. Because they have no, no food. They need to work to have food. Ureivim, for those that were hungry, starving, 
Chodeu. The hunger is stopped. Next contrast. Adakara Yodashiva. The barren one gives birth to seven. Vrabad Banim, but the one who had many, Umlara, has become, has lost her children, or can they translate, forlorn. Another third contrast. And again, Hashem may meet Umechayeh. God, God takes life and gives life. Morid Shaul can bring one down to the pit. Vayal can raise one up. Hashem Morish, God can make one poor. Umashir can make one wealthy. Mashpio can bring one down. Achmeromain can bring one up. Mekimi Afardal raises from the dust the, the, the impoverished one. Meashpot Yavim Evion. Loshivim Nizivim. Fikisei Kavod Yanchiwen. So it means God can raise even the lowest, from the, from the lowest places, God can raise up. And then he continues in verse 9. Ragwei Chasidav Yishmar. God will protect the feet of his righteous. Urishaim Bachoshech Yidamu. But the wicked ones will, Yidamu, shall be perish, shall be silent in the darkness. A person cannot prevail by strength. Hashem yechatu merivav. The enemies of God will be shattered. Alav b'shemayim yarein. God will rain against them from heaven, thunder against them from heaven. Hashem yadin apsteyaretz. God will judge the ends of the earth. V'yitenos l'malko. Give strength to his king. V'yarein keren mishicho and triumph is anointed one I challenge anybody of sane mind to suggest that this is a poem that has to do with childbirth it's nothing to do with childbirth at all from top to bottom nothing remember many years ago I spoke it was the Hamptons or something there's always one wise guy in the audience you know what I mean so I talked about this someone says interrupts me says, Rabbi you know that this poem was not actually written for this situation. It was written for something else. It was composed for a completely different thing. I said, okay, maybe that's true. Let me ask you a question. Why did the writer insert it here? That's the question. As if, as if, no, who cares what it was written for? It's written for someone's birthday party. Well, what do we care? But the book of Shemuel has inserted the poem as Hannah's response to the birth of a child. What's the connection? So I have a suggestion that I've made many times in the past. I'll suggest it again. I think it's right, so I'll suggest it. Which is this. If you want to understand, what's striking about this poem, by the way, apart from these contrasts, it's about the way God should judge the world. Hashem Yadin, it's God's judgment. Hashem Yadin Afseyaretz. It's what Hannah imagines should be the way that God judges the world. But what is very striking are the last two lines of this little song. V'yitain oz l'malko v'yaren keren mishicho God should give strength to God's king. At this point in the book, there is no king. There is no anointed one. There is no king. The book of Shmuel, in fact, is about kingship. It's about the anointing of a king. In fact, there are two kings in this book. There's Saul and there's David. And the book is all about that. The book is about kingship the role of the king, etc., and how the kings either fail or don't fail to 
carry out their task. So it sounds like Chalavi Tenos from Malko seems to be a prayer actually. That God should give strength to God's king. The placement in the beginning of the book of Shmuel suggests to us that what Chana is saying is this is the way God should run the world. This is the, the way the world should run. The meek shall inherit the earth. The arrogant shall be put down. Right? That is the way God should run the earth. And the last two verses are saying and God should give strength to God's king who Chana hopes will actually carry out this particular mission. What Chana sets forth over here in the beginning of Sefer Shmuel is how she imagines human beings should enable God's kingship to be present here on, on, uh, on, on earth. Now what does that have to do with the story of Chana? So I think what has to do with the story of Chana is and we have to go back to chapter 1 and Hannah in chapter 1 is asking God to give her a child the, the interesting feature of Hannah's prayer for a child we'll get to the prayer that's the main point here but what's curious about the prayer for a child in chapter 1 and the whole prayer consists of one verse which is chapter 1 verse 11 the prayer first of all in verse 11 takes the form of a vow so this prayer is a vow, a neder. The biblical vows are virtually without exception conditional statements. Hard press defines a vow. That's not conditional. If you do this, I'll do that. And that's exactly what Chana says. If you, God, remember me, and don't forget me, and give me a child, that's if, then, I will give him to God all the days of his life, here they translate, and no razor shall ever touch his head. So that's the, if X, then Y. If you give me the child, I will give the child to you, and this child will be called it some kind of a Nazarite, one, one who's dedicated to God. If you give me the child, I'll give the child away. That's what Chana does, actually. She gives the child away. So what is she actually asking for? It's very strange to request something, and if you do it, if you give it to me, I'll give it away. So what is that? What's the point, then? So it strikes me that one way to understand the story is this. That's what I want to talk about. And that is that Chana walks into the temple, which is Shiloh. That's how the book begins. The book begins with Shiloh, which is the place of the temple. Her husband, we are told, makes periodic trips to, to Shiloh. The words of the Shmuel is, he goes to Miyamim Yamima, from time to, means periodically, to bow down and sacrifice. So he's a full-fledged member of the temple of Shiloh. And he brings his family up with him, and he brings the sacrifices, he gives out the portions. Chane, it would appear, wants no part of this. First of all, she doesn't eat the, the portions. She doesn't eat them. And furthermore, she doesn't seem to participate in the Shiro festivities at all. Quite the opposite. She prays. A prayer that's so remarkable, it would appear, that this high priest can't imagine what she's 
but she's doing that. She goes to the temple and she prays. Now the claim I want to make, several of them, but the first claim I want to make is that first of all, the temple of Shiloh is a place of utter corruption. In fact, it will be destroyed in two, two or three chapters later. God will destroy the temple of Shiloh. Among other things, it's run by the two sons of Eli, Chafi and Pinchas, whom the, Torah, whom the book of Shemuel says later on, God actually hates them. God, God hates these priests of Shiloh. God vows to destroy Shiloh. And God does destroy Shiloh in chapter 4. The predicted demise of Shiloh was already found in chapter 2 in the very next chapter. And the people that run it, which in the Haftorah, in chapter 1, in verse number 3, that verse is actually interesting for several reasons. Here's one of them. The second half of the verse, the man would go up to Shiloh periodically to bow down sacrifice, and there were the two sons of Eli, Chafni and Pinchas, priests of priests for God. What is strange about that second half of verse number three is that when you read the story of Hana, the sons of Eli never figure in the story altogether. The person who figures in the story of Hana that we read about on Rosh Hashanah is the high priest Eli. He's the one who observes Hana's prayer. He's the one who critiques her. He's the one who blesses her. He's the one who will receive the child that she donates to Shiloh. Chafi and Pinchas, the sons of Eli, are not mentioned until after the song of Hana. In chapter 2, there it says in chapter 2 that not that Samuel went to serve God before Eli. That's verse 11. And in verse 12, But the sons of Eli were wicked people who knew not God. The first we hear a description of the sons of Eli. So the question that can be raised is, if that be the case, why did the book of Shmuel, in telling us about the you know, periodic journey to Shiloh, mention the sons of Eli altogether? It should have said, Bisham Hashem. That would make sense, because the story is about Eli. If you want to tell us anything at all, you can also not tell us, we'll figure it out ourselves. Why mention the Chafni Pinchas? The answer, I think, is clear. When you read the story, Chafi and Pinchas represent the corruption of Shiloh. In other words, is going to a place where he wants to serve God. He goes periodically there. But the place, the place he's going to is one that is corrupt. He doesn't seem to be aware of this. He seems to be unaware of it. He goes there all the time. And now Hannah walks into Shiloh, and she prays, and the prayer is, if you give me a child, I will dedicate this child to, to you, God. Which means, presumably, it's what, how the Torah describes the Nazarite. Nazarite is the one who separates from the community. I will bring this child up. He'll be part of the institutions of society. But he's com- completely separated from them. And her prayer, she prays for some day when the leadership will be that 
which reflects God's true judgment of, the, of, of, of the, God's true values. So therefore, I think it's fair to say that when Hannah walks into the temple, Shiloh, what she's praying for is not a child, because that child she's giving away. She wants someone that she will instruct in, 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 and impart the values which will, in fact, uh, change the way the community, the way society works. That's the introduction to the book of Shmuel. And what's interesting is, just to follow this train of thought, the prayer of Hannah is a prayer that is exactly one verse long. It takes the form of a vow, which I said is a commitment, a reciprocal commitment. If you do this for me, I'll do that for you. Every vow, every nether of the Torah is that way. Okay? By the way, I would add something else about the vow over here. Just as I'm talking. And that is, Okay? Which is the vow of the Nazarite. How do you become a Nazarite, actually? Take a vow. So the Nazarite is a vow. So over here, she's, one might say, taking a double vow. She's making the standard vow, which is, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. Like Jacob, when he runs away from home. If you take care of me, and you give me food, and you give me clothing, bring me back in peace, you will be my God. And all the vows are that way. They're all conditional. But in order to emphasize the nature, that the vow is it, what's at the heart of it, she ought, the text has her saying, and not just that, I will commit him to being a a, a, a Nazarite from, from birth, actually. In other words, normally the Nazarite is one, man or woman, it's a regular simple Jew, who takes on this commitment. In the case of Hannah, however, she's imposing the Nazarite vow upon her own child before the child's even born. Right? She says. So this idea of the vow, the conditional statement, which means the reciprocal commitment, the prayer of Hannah, is a reciprocal commitment. I'll do this for you if you do something for me. What will I do for you? What is she doing? I'm going to give my child, I'll dedicate my child to God's service. Now in terms of dedicating the child to God's service, here's an important point about this child. The child that was born is Samuel. Samuel. Anybody who ever studied the book of Shmuel knows that the character of Samuel is based upon, to a large extent, Moses. All kinds of parallels between Samuel and Moses. Not that they're identical, but the character of Samuel plays off the character of Moses. What's interesting is, if we look at Hannah's prayer, she took a vow unto God. Lord Hashem Tzvaot, she says, Lord of hosts, Imraot Tireh Ba'aniyamotecha, if you will see, she says, the wretchedness, and don't and remember me, and don't forget me, and give me a child, then I will dedicate the child to God. So the prayer begins with the statement, that's, that's how she introduces her prayer. And when you read verse 11, this is obviously a very central verse. It's a prayer. When you read that verse, as often happens in the study of 
Tanakh, you're hearing another verse. It's virtually identical, actually. A very important verse that appears in the third chapter of the book of Exodus. Rather significant story. It's when God sets out to create a nation. And God seeks out Moshe. Moses is shepherding the flock and he comes to a desert and in the desert he sees a burning bush. He's very intrigued by that. His intellectual curiosity comes forth. Suddenly God speaks, don't get too close. I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Then God begins to speak. First words out of God's mouth at the burning bush. I think it's verse 7. Exodus chapter 3 verse number 7 116 first words out of God's mouth first instruction to Moses about redeeming Israel from Egypt and building a nation first words out of God's mouth I surely have seen at Oni Ami Asher Mitzrayim, the plight of my people in Egypt. That's what God says. This is why I'm, I'm this is why I'm seeking you out. I have a mission for you. The mission, and you have to accept this mission, is to redeem, take my people out of Egypt and to begin to move them towards sacred space. That's the mission. Moses accepts. In the book of Exodus, in the Torah, we never actually get to the promised land. But in the book of Exodus, we get to the preliminary sacred space. That's how the book of Exodus ends. The book of Exodus is about leaving Egypt and then journeying towards a sacred space, which in the book of Exodus occupies about two-fifths of the book. We call that the uh, Mishkan. The, the sacred abode of God, that's the Mishkan. And the Mishkan has many, di- takes many journeys to many different places before there is the final temple in Jerusalem. The main place it travels to, of course, is a place called Shiloh. Shiloh was the preliminary space. So in fact, Khan is walking into Shiloh and she's standing in God's temple. And let me paraphrase what she's saying. She's saying, many years ago, you sent Moshe to take my people out of Egypt, take your people out of Egypt. And, uh, and you brought them on a journey which in the book of Exodus ended up with the Mishkan. And now today I stand in your Mishkan. And I say to you that we have to start over again. Because I walk around me in the Mishkan. It's a place of utter and total corruption. It's run by Chafniyupinachas. I can't stand it, and I'm sure you can't either. In fact, God wants to destroy it very soon. So therefore, here's my prayer. My prayer is, if you give me an opportunity, I will give me a child. I will train that child. And that child will be a second Moses. And that child will, spiritually, take Israel out of Egypt. Because we're in Egypt, she says. We're in Egypt. And that child, eventually, will build, will build the temple. Now, yes, Jerome. Uh, just to underscore the strength of the corruption that we need to 
conclusion, uh, perhaps Khafni uh, and Pinchas, two words, those are Egyptian names. I could well, that, that may, may well be we don't even have to go there it's clear I'll just point this out briefly how the book of Shmuel begins with a description of a culture which it connects to to, 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 to Mitzrayim my point is that it's an interesting prayer on one hand she describes herself in this one verse three different times as Amotecha right? Three times. You, uh, and Amma is a slave woman. If you see the pride of your slave woman, remember me. Don't forget your slave woman. And give your slave woman a child. I will, I will give the child to God for all of his days. <coughs> and no razor shall touch his head. So the point is this child that she's asking for is one that she will train. That's what she does. She will dedicate to the temple, having imparted her values. And the story of Shmuel, actually, the person Samuel in this book, he's the one who will anoint the kings. He anoints the first king. He anoints the second king. And I would remind all of us, this point is so obvious, but no one has seen it. So the point is, the book of Samuel as we have it. It's interesting. As we have the book of Samuel. All the moderns have it ending in different places. But the Masoretic tradition ends the book of Samuel in chapter 24 of book 2. Chapter 24 of book 2 is the story of David taking the census. Right? And God says to David, the prophet says, you sin grievously, and David is punished. And then the prophet says to David, David says, I shouldn't be the king anymore, no. Go to the threshing place of Aravna, the Yehusi, Mr. Aaron, the ark, and bring there a sacrifice. And David brought a sacrifice in that place, and the plague was stopped. That's the end of the book, actually. But Arab Nahiyahusi, clearly in the book of Samuel, and of course in that tradition, <coughs> is the place of the temple. The book ends with discovering the place of the temple. Not an, that's actually a very important point towards an understanding of Shmuel. The book begins with the destruction of Shiloh and a prayer for somebody actually a second Moses but this time she says leave it up to me because your plan seems to have fallen off the tracks this time leave it up to me let me do it right and I will create a second Moses take us out of Egypt and bring us towards the building of your appropriate temple not Shiloh, which is the place of corruption. That's the overall frame of the book. What makes the book interesting, actually a hundred different reasons, is that this particular narrator, writer, has all kinds of interesting twists and turns along the way, including, but not limited to the fact, that the very person that she prayed for, Samuel, whom in her prayer says, God will give strength to God's king, and raise up God's anointed but Samuel himself is the fiercest opponent of kingship altogether he's against kingship so the very child she prays for whose job it is in fact to anoint the kings the second of whom David will in fact end the book by finding the place of the temple thank you he himself is opposed to kingship the book has 
all kinds of interesting twists and turns to it. Just to strengthen the point about that, the point of the Hannah's prayer is not just a prayer for herself. I'm not denying <coughs> that she wants a child, don't get me wrong. But I'm saying that in her prayer there are two elements. One may be a personal element, but there's also the communal element. In fact, I would say that her prayer is it's the way the Baal Shem Tov understood prayer. <coughs> Actually praying for God. In other words, the point is, what she's really saying to God is, you put me on earth to do your work. So give me an opportunity. Give me a child and I will train this child to, to, to build God's kingdom on earth. Which is how she describes it. A just world. Not a world where the powerful people take advantage of the weak. This is the world of Shiloh. The priests of Shiloh are ripping everybody off. The women, the people who come to bring sacrifices, well-intentioned, God, are taking their portion first. And Hannah doesn't like that. Hannah says, that's not the way it's, that's not your plan. So give me an opportunity, and I will create God's kingdom on earth. By the way, this theme that Samuel is the second Moses, and that the role of the prophet here is to build a different society. That's really Moses' role. Moses' role was not just to take them out of Egypt, obviously. Moses' role is is to envision uh, a different kind of society and to try to build that society. The anti-Egypt, okay, but it's building a different world, not simple. If you take a look for one moment, and then we'll get back to Rosh Hashanah and Hannah's prayer. If you take a look at chapter 3, for example... Samuel was already born and donated to Shiloh and in chapter 3 he serves God before Eli that's how chapter 3 begins Eli is represented by the book of Shmuel as on one hand a very saintly man on the other hand he's very unperceptive for example in chapter 1 when he sees Hannah's prayer, which is a silent prayer, her lips are moving but there's no sound, he accuses her of being drunk. He's never seen such a prayer before. He thought she was drunk. And he sees his own role as safeguarding the sanctity of the temple. Now, you might laugh at that in the sense his own kids are running amok in the temple, but okay, but that's how he sees his role. He's safeguarding the purity and the sanctity. He's watching her lips, okay? And then he accuses her when she says, no, that's not me, that's not what it is. Oh, we see, thank you, so he actually blesses her. He's actually a very sweet person. He's very well-intentioned, but he's unperceptive. Samuel is sent to serve God before Ailey. That's actually a very important point. Ailey's his Rebbe. Ailey's his father, one might say. So he's going to serve God. Samuel is Ailey's true son. His biological children, not his real children, because they're totally corrupt. But Samuel is pure, very pure and very innocent. That's how chapter 3 begins. So the boy Samuel served God before Eli. And then the text continues. We can't do this all, obviously. Udvar Hashem hayayakar bayami In those days, 
God wor- God's word was yakar. Does yakar mean? Precious. Precious. Why, what things are precious? Scarce. Scarce, right. The law of supply and demand. God's word was precious, scarce. In chazon nifratz, prophecy was not widespread. In short, God's not speaking. Now why is God not speaking? The other person who doesn't speak so far that we encounter in the book of Samuel is Hannah. Hannah doesn't speak either. Her lips are moving, but there's no sound. And God is not speaking in chapter 3. So God and Hannah seem to be on the same wavelength. And it says, Vayi bayomahu v'yeli shochev bimkomo On a particular day, one day, Eli was sleeping in his place. So he has a place in the temple. V'yeinav hechegu kehot lo yuchav wrote. His eyes were becoming dim. He could not see. So his eyes are dim. He's old. Is it just because he's old, or is there more to it than that? We'll see in a second. Next verse. V'ner Elohim terem yichbeh. The lamp of God was not yet extinguished and not yet gone out. Ushmuel shalchev beheichal Hashem asher shom aron Elohim. Samuel was sleeping in the innermost inner court of God, where the ark was present. Whether he's actually sleeping next to the ark, which bothered many of the commentaries, or whether it means he's sleeping in the in the temple, which has an ark, to me, is not that big a difference. The point of the verse is that he's sleeping in the place where there's an ark. Now, why is he now? He's sleeping in one place, but Ailey sleeps in a different place. Samuel sleeps next to the ark. Ailey sleeps in his own room. But God is not speaking. Says right. The word of God was precious in those days. So we, what is the purpose of the ark in the Torah, actually? What does the Torah say the purpose of the ark is? It holds the Luchot, and it does hold the Luchot, and what is the purpose of that? It's where God speaks. I will speak to you from above the ark. So what we have over here is an ark, but it has no purpose. It could be in a museum or something. It's, 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 it has no meaning. Because God ain't talking. So therefore we understand very well the verse, Samuel was sleeping next to the ark, because we're just told. It's a very nice piece of furniture, but it has no function anymore, because God doesn't talk. And suddenly, God begins to speak. That's the story of chapter 3. Suddenly God talks, God calls Samuel. What does Samuel do when God calls him? He rushes to Ailey. He nani. He says to Ailey, He nani. You have called me. No, son, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. So he goes back to sleep. What happens? God calls him a second time. He rushes off to Ailey a second time. He nani. You called me. I didn't call you, son. Go back to sleep. He goes back to his room. God calls a third time. Samuel, Samuel. So what does Samuel do? He rushes off to Ailey. Here I am, for you have called me. And Ailey understands. He says, listen, he says, go back to your room. But this time, if you hear that voice again, say, speak God, your servant is listening. That's the story. Now, what is the story actually? When you read the story, now they have a fancy word, intertext. I didn't know that word for 40 years, but 
what, what, what is this story? You read the story. What is it? It's getting, it's getting both the Abrahamic mission and the Mosaic mission back on track. What, what, what particular story does it recall for you? A particular story. The burning bush. The burning bush is the same imagery. What is the imagery of the, of the burning bush, actually? There's a little fire that's burning, but not extinguished. What does that mean, actually? Pshat. Pshat of the drush. It's a drush in the Chumash. What is, what is the pshat? It's very simple. The fire in the book of Exodus represents essentially one thing. The presence of God. Sinai is the fire. Fiery mountain. In those days, there's a little tiny little flame. A little flicker. Why is there a little flame? Because the reader suddenly understands something very important. That for all those years in Egypt, from the moment Jacob goes down to Egypt in chapter 46, when God speaks to Jacob, God never talks. God never speaks in Egypt. God always speaks in Egypt when God is saying to, to Moshe, get out. That's when God, same as Lavan, by the way. Jacob in the house of Lavan, God never speaks to Jacob. God always speaks to Jacob when God says to Jacob, shuv, leave. That's actually, I would say, the definition of being in Egypt. The definition of exile is to be in a place where God never speaks. The point is very simple. God's not talking. It's the same imagery of the of the fly, little fire, which, by the way, the, of course, in the hands of the writer of Shmuel, awesome, he, ex- of course, extends the metaphor. It includes not only the little fire that's not yet extinguished, but includes another fire that's flickering and almost out, which is the sight of Eli the priest. It, it plays with those two things together. That priesthood of Shiloh is coming to its end. It's flickering. And Eli doesn't see. If Eli could actually see, were he perceptive, he wouldn't let his kids run amok, but he doesn't see them. And therefore, suddenly, God is going to create a kind of new world at the center of which will be Samuel. Now, the genius of the writer of Shmuel, which is virtually every page, you see it many times, is this. That what the writer of Shmuel did we'll get back to Hannah, but the writer of Shemuel did was, took the story of the burning bush, Moses calling, which Moses rejects the calling many times, but finally agrees. Now we have little Samuel over here, in the words of the writer, little Samuel doesn't, doesn't know God. He says in chapter, he doesn't, God never spoke to him, so he doesn't understand. Not only that, but what's the first word that Moshe says, that Moshe, he named it. Right. Of course. Of course. It wasn't of course before No, that's the point. Once you see this, it's obvious. Now let me tell you something else which is very important, which is part of the greatness of the book of Shmuel. (coughs) Three times, the story could have been told a hundred ways. This narrator chooses to tell the story this way. He hears a voice. He runs off to Ailey. He named me, for you have called me. No, son, go back to sleep. Second time. Third time. To Ailey says to him, no, no. This is what you got to do. Go back, and when God speaks, say, I'm listening. Your servant is listening. Now, what is the point of all that? The story could easily have been told very differently. And God calls to Samuel and says, well, who is that? I am the God or whatever. Same as Moses, right? Why this business of rushing off three times to Ailey? 
What is the point of that? Yes. Well, if A knows the third time that it is Hashem who's speaking it, why doesn't he tell him that the first time? He doesn't know it the first time, perhaps. He figures it out. It's got to be something. So maybe he's hallucinating. What? Someone's. There's something else very important in the story. It's part of the. The point is very simple. The first, the first, the first verse begins, and the boy Samuel served God before Ailey. You have to understand something. This is a very important point. He serves God before Ailey. That's Ailey for Samuel. Well, that what he's called is his Rebbe. If you have a real Rebbe, what was a Rebbe? A Rebbe connects you to God. That's what a Rebbe is, basically. It's supposed to be. The Rebbe is the one that gives you a path in life, teaches you, who gets, allows you to figure out your own path and how you, how you reach God. The Rebbe is, of course, invaluable. The Rebbe is, gives you eternal life. It's clear in the story that Samuel hears this, comes one time, no son, go back to sleep. Here's another voice. Here I am. Same thing. It's obvious in the story, if he hears that voice 500 times, he runs it 500 times daily. Because the Rebbe is calling you. But more than that, there's something else. (coughs) Samuel doesn't distinguish the voice of God from the voice of his Rebbe. It's all the same voice. The point of the story is, what God says to Samuel is, I'm telling you something very dramatic, earth-shattering. I plan to destroy Shiloh. What a shock. This is his Rebbe. And the power of the narrator is that actually it's, the, it's Ailey himself who directs Samuel how to, how to behave. Both in terms of this is what you have to say when you hear the voice and the end of the story he gets up next morning, opens up the gates and Ailey says, what did, what did God say to you? Maybe he, maybe he knows. He says, don't be afraid and you have to tell me. That's very important. He's teaching him an important lesson about what it means to be a prophet. You have to tell the truth. That's a very difficult thing in life, to actually tell the truth. Ailey's is ready all the way, by the way. Both in terms of receiving the prophecy. That you don't have in the snap. There's never a sense in the Chumash, maybe in the movies, but not in the Chumash, that Moses and Pharaoh have any real connection. It's never. But that's not true of Ailey and Shemuel. My point is, this is the story of Mitzrayim. This is leaving Mitzrayim. So, the connection, in fact, when God speaks to Ailey in chapter 2, I chose you in the land of Egypt. So, Chana's prayer, then. What is Chana's prayer? Chana's prayer, if you give me a child, I will direct this child to do your service and to be a second Moses, which is both to take them out of Egypt but also to anoint the kings who hopefully will build the true house of God, not this place of corruption, which should be eliminated right away, but to build the true house of God. That's, that's actually Hannah's prayer. It takes the form of a neder because it's a, it's a commitment. <coughs> Remember, several years ago, we had Roly Madelon. He had Roly a few times. Topic was song, prayer and song. <coughs> so, there all kinds of questions. So, at the end, I, I have a question. I didn't really have a question. 
and I wanted people to hear his answer, which I didn't know what he was going to say. But I knew it would be on target. Who was this? Oh, we met one from BJ. So I said to him, what's your view of prayer and song? What's the connection between prayer? Some people think song is prayer. I don't, but some people do. I know he doesn't either, even though his synagogue is very focused on song. So he said, it, he said something which I remember, I like the formulation. He says, prayer is actually about commitments. We commit ourselves through uh, speech. That's what he said. Through words. It's actually a very elegant formulation of it. Sometimes the song, true song, can get you to figure out what your commitment should be. But the voice through words. So the point is, Khan's prayer, actually, is about a commitment. If you do this for me, then I commit to something. And what I commit is to try to change the world. I can't do it myself. She's a childless woman whose husband's married to somebody else. And she's very upset about this. He says, don't worry about it. I love you more than seven or seven ch- ten children, whatever. <coughs> so she turns to God. And it's about this particular, it's about this commitment. Now Rosh Hashanah, I'll get back to Chad, but Rosh, what is Rosh Hashanah actually about? If you wonder what Rosh Hashanah is about, so one place to look, the first place we look, is the prayer book, the Machzor. The Machzor tells you at least one view about what Rosh Hashanah is about, I think a very important perspective on Rosh Hashanah. So you look at the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, and there's something interesting about the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, which is not so much what is there, but what's not there. What you would expect to find in the standard Machzor is something about repentance, is something about confession, Srichot. The Ashkenazim, the Sfarim, is saying Srichot from Rosh Hashanah. The Sfarim starts Srichot Saturday night either right before Rosh Hashanah or a week before. And the Srichot service, Erev Rosh Hashanah, it goes on forever. And the day after Rosh Hashanah is Tom Kedalia, it's the second longest one. So Erev Rosh Hashanah is very long Srichot, and day after Rosh Hashanah is very long Srichot. You would expect that Rosh Hashanah should be really long Srichot. How many Srichot do we say on Rosh Hashanah? Zero. There are no Srichot on Rosh Hashanah. There's also no confession on Rosh Hashanah. No vidur. It's Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah, not at all. What does that say to us? It says very simple. Rosh Hashanah is not a pachuba. That's what it says. That's not the primary theme of Rosh Hashanah at all. What the primary theme of Rosh Hashanah is about can be found in the basic blessing of Rosh Hashanah. Melech al-Kova Aretz Mikadesh Yisrael v'yom azikaron It's about the kingship of God what it's about. In that sense, it's the most difficult holiday, I think, to connect to. What does that mean for us, the kingship of God? But the point is, the one who speaks about the kingship of God is Hannah, actually. She describes in very, a very direct language. She doesn't strike us as a sort of a happy camper, you know what I mean? Her prayer is equally about raising up the meek but it's also about destroying the arrogant the haughty the powerful all that so but how do we but then she says Vite Malko Karen Mishicho 
God will give strength to God's king. So what it means is that even though the theme of Rosh Hashanah is God's kingship, but the Haftorah at least is a moral charge which says it may be God's kingship. We want God's kingship to be... But the question is, what do we do about that? So the king is the human being who is responsible for imposing God's will on earth, for creating God's kingdom on earth. That's the Haftorah of Rosh Hashanah. So for that reason, among others, they chose the Haftorah it's the story of Chana, That's one reason for it, and probably the main reason. But then we come to the story of the prayer. Because Rosh Hashanah actually, at least as understood rabbinically, what Rosh Hashanah actually means when you open the Chumash is a very good question. Because the Torah says virtually nothing about Rosh Hashanah. So we got to... So the rabbinic tradition stepped in and developed <coughs> developed this concept of Rosh Hashanah. Among other things, it's about it becomes for us a some kind of enthronement ceremony, but God is anointed king. That's number one. But then the question is, what what does God do as king? What do kings what are they doing, basically? What do kings do? So in the Chumash never says what kings do, by the way. But the book of Shmuel, of course, tells us what kings do, what should do. They have two main tasks. But one of which is to uh, judge. The king is a judge. So God the king on Rosh Hashanah is a, is a, is a judge. Where is that mentioned in the Rosh Hashanah service? that the day of Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. First of all, stop, before I answer the question. Let me, let me say something else about so-called Rosh Hashanah's service, okay? Which is very important about Rosh Hashanah and in general. It's very unfortunate that I would guess 99% of people that come to the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah are never told a very simple thing. The same million prayers on Rosh Hashanah. There's all kinds of stuff going on. The question is, what actually are the key prayers? That's very important. Classically speaking, what are the key prayers? There are two kinds of keys. One is, from a classical standpoint, structurally, what are the key prayers? And then there's another kind of key prayer, which is emotionally. It may not be a key prayer, but emotionally, it may be irrelevant from a structural standpoint, but it's very significant. For example, among, for the Ashkenazim, whether you like it or don't like it, doesn't matter, actually. It's very key for the Ashkenazim. Unisanatokev. Sanatokev, if you didn't say, if you eliminated it altogether, it would never be missed. Nisanatokev is a medieval composition. It's not part of the basic structure of the... It's a peel. It's a poem that's inserted into the davening. From a structural standpoint, it's irrelevant, actually. Svarim don't say it. It's irrelevant. But from an emotional standpoint, it has become over time a highly significant prayer. Thinking about judgment and the upcoming year and who's not with us anymore and who is with us anymore and all of that, it's very powerful. God judges the angels, that's very powerful. I mean, it's, but that's not from a structural standpoint significant. It's irrelevant. What, what is this? 
what is the prayer, what is the Rosh Hashanah service about? If you had to pare it down to its essentials, there are two things. First of all, the shofar is number one. That's one thing. And the second is the three blessings that are recited in the Musaf service called Machiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot. That's Rosh Hashanah. Everything else is commentary. That's it. Machiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot are the three blessings of Rosh Hashanah. And each one has a set of themes connected to it. The day is the day of God's kingship, but there are also Zichronot and Shofrot. Okay? Now, I'm not going to get into that now. But I'll say one thing about Zichronot, which are very significant. First of all, the day of Rosh Hashanah itself in the service is called Yom HaZikaron. Let's not forget that. The day of remembrance. That's what we call Rosh Hashanah in our liturgy. Yom HaZikaron Hazeh. Day of remembering. The first theme of Zichronot is actually judgment. Tazocher Maseolah. God, you remember all past deeds, etc. So that's the idea of, of judgment. So Malchiot is kingship, but the main thing the king is doing on Rosh Hashanah is judging, and the theme of judgment is how we start this part of the davening called Zichronot, remembrance. The idea of memory is actually very central to Rosh Hashanah, central to Judaism, but it's also central to Rosh Hashanah, and it carries with it, among other things, the following thought that everything we do in other words human beings tend to forget things because oh because it's hard to remember everything so we remember the things we care to remember but if, 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 when you forget something what you're really saying is it wasn't significant the idea that God remembers everything actually is a way of saying that everything we do has some significance, which of course is true. Everything has some significance, and that God remembers everything we do is a way of saying that everything we did in the past and presumably in the future carries with it a, some kind of significance, has to be weighed in terms of what we did, what we said, its impact, etc. So that's the idea of Rosh Hashanah, that's the idea of, of Zichronos. So let's get back to the shofar. The, the, the Torah basically says nothing about Rosh Hashanah. It says on the first day of the seventh month, it's a day of Trua. And it says, the second verse is, Zichron Trua, the mentioning or the recalling of a Trua. And that's it. There's nothing else said about Rosh Hashanah. The rabbinic tradition interprets for us what does this mean, Yom Trua and Zichron Trua. The Torah never, by the way, mentions on Rosh Hashanah, surprisingly, there's a little word that's never mentioned in conjunction with Rosh Hashanah in the Chumash. The little word is called Shofar. The Torah never says it's not a Shofar. The Torah never mentions Shofar, even though it mentions elsewhere Shofar. never says Shofar. That's a rabbinic interpretation. That in Rosh Hashanah, the Trua is made, the sound of a Trua is made by the Shofar, but the Torah never said it. So leaving what, what the Torah did actually say, I'll leave for another time. But the rabbinic understanding of Rosh Hashanah is important. Yom Trua means for the rabbinic tradition a sound that is made, a Trua sound that is made, the, and the way we make the sound, the medium for expressing the sound, is the uh, Shofar. 
Now what's interesting about the shofar is this, about the service of Rosh Hashanah. When do you actually blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah? So the Mishnah makes it clear. It's clear in the Mishnah that the shofar, according to the Mishnah, the shofar is sounded only one, in one place on Rosh Hashanah. And that place is in, in the middle of the, of the service. It's called the Musaf. Malchiyot, Sichronot, Shofrot, each of them is a blessing. And those blessings, each of those blessings, you sound the Shofrot. The Mishnah doesn't know of sounding the Shofrot before Musaf, as we do. The Mishnah doesn't know of any blessing on the Shofrot either. There's no blessing on the Shofrot in the Mishnah. Blessing on the shofar is a medieval invention. It doesn't exist in the Mishnah. The entire custom is what it is of blowing the shofar after the Torah reading before Musaf is problematic, actually. And the medievals try to justify it. It's typically justified in terms of some people that are sick, that are old, that can't stay. That's the reason. But the real shofar is sounded not before the Muslim service, but in the middle of it. And that itself tells us something about the shofar. It's the rabbinic understanding of shofar. The rabbinic understanding of shofar, apparently, is that it's not simply a mitzvah to make the sound to proclaim either the day or even to proclaim God as king, but somehow the mitzvah of shofar is understood rabbinically to be a kind of prayer which is why you sound it in the middle of the prayers. For it not a prayer, it would be very strange to sound the shofar in the middle of the prayer service. The mission only knows that the shofar sounded in conjunction with the blessings of Rosh Hashanah. So it's understanding that the shofar is a kind of prayer. Now what kind of prayer is the shofar, actually? So it would appear that the shofar actually is two kinds of prayer. Two kinds of prayer. What is kind of, you know, when you, if you have some kind of inauguration, maybe a graduation, they play music, you know what I mean? Coronation. Coronation scene. So they have music for the coronation, which is what the shofar is. In fact, the custom, that universal custom of the Jewish people, to sound the shofar before Musaf, actually. Right? Before the shofar is sounded, before Musaf, so the Sephardim have one custom, and the Ashkenazim have a different custom. The custom of the Ashkenazim is to recite a psalm seven times. What psalm is that? Do you remember? Vamnatseach Uvnei Korach Mizmar. Of course. That's a very, very powerful psalm. And what that psalm is, when you read it, and it was so busy saying it seven times, never pay attention to it, I understand. But, but the point is, it's a coronation poem. Read it. The world is crowning God as king. Not just. That's a coronation ceremony. That's part of shofar is like a trumpet, you know what I mean? And sometimes it's coronations, you have trumpets. So we have a shofar. That's one idea of the shofar. And I would say probably 
the custom that we do have of blowing the shofar before the musaf, that shofar before the musaf, the Ashkenazim see as a, as a coronation. But the shofar in the musaf, there the focus is more on something else, which is a response. Because the musaf is not just about statements about God, it is largely that, but it's also requests from God. Those are the three requests. Reign over the world, remember us for good, remember the binding of Isaac, and sound the great shofar of, of redemption. Those are requests. As soon as after that request, we sound the shofar. So it means that the shofar of Rosh Hashanah has two different aspects to it. One is a coronation, a proclamation about God, and statements about God, because the verses of the Rosh Hashanah service are statements about God. The Rosh Hashanah service consists of verses. Ten verses for Malchiel, ten verses for Zichronot, ten verses for Shofrot. That's one thing. Statements, coronation. And then there's another side to it, which is the request. The sound of the shofar, Yom Trua, it's a broken sound. Right? What is this broken sound? Either a staccato, or it's a sighing. Right? It's called a cry. It's a, it's a, way, it's a cry. So we're crying on Rosh Hashanah. It means we're praying. Something's missing, we're asking, something's bothering us. I would say it's a cry of someone who hasn't figured out what exactly is wrong. In Yom Kippur, we had a lot of time to think about what's wrong. We, we, we specify all kinds of things on Yom Kippur. On Rosh Hashanah, we don't know yet. Suddenly, Shop is always a big surprise when it comes, you know. So we, we know something's wrong. We can't exactly figure out what it is. So that's a response. So actually, in thinking about Hannah's prayer, the Haftorah of Rosh Hashanah. It's exactly those two things. Because Khan has two prayers, actually. The first prayer is a request. I'm missing something. Give me an opportunity. Give me, you know, that's the first prayer. That's a request. And the second prayer of Khana is a prayer of gratitude, thanksgiving, but it's actually a prayer about God. It's all about God. The nature of God, what God will do, should do, promises to do, statements about God. Yes, it does end with God should grant strength to God's king, of course. But the focus of it is God. The first is not. The first focus is on me, whom she calls Amatecha, your maidservant, your slave, your servant, your humble servant. Please don't forget me. Don't forget me, she says. Many people are forgotten people. Rome this earth, most of them, actually. Nobody, nobody remembers them. Don't, don't forget me. It's very powerful. Remember me. I still have a role in this world. I still want to do your work. So the double prayer of Chana, that's another connection to Rosh Hashanah. Yes, what do you want to say? I, I think I remember my childhood. I'm sure that the government, they do the show for Ghana, Khan, Ghana, 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 there are two customs. What? The Spartans do it, and the Spartans. And the truth is that there are two, two 
ancient customs. But when you blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, one custom is to sound the shofar both in the silent Shemona Esrei and the repetition of the Shemona Esrei. And the reason that's not done in many synagogues is very simple, I think. Even some synagogues that want to do it, it's not so simple to do it. You have to, the, a lot of people, they're supposed to wait when you get to the blessing, you wait. People won't do it right. People sit down and start talking. But there is an ancient custom. And uh, I, I personally prefer it very much. And it's, it's very powerful. And it, it makes the point that even our silent prayers are connected to the shofar. The shofar is... Now let's get back to Chana for a second and Rosh Hashanah. The point of the shofar is a... Pre- shofar is a there's a, a dimension to shofar <coughs> that's a prayer but the prayer has no words no words and they how do we understand a prayer without words so there are actually many ways to understand it one way to understand it is I mentioned before sometimes you can't find the words very often it happens to me all the time something's bothering me what's bothering you something's bothering me I don't know what it is Something's not right here. Something bothers me. So often we can't find the words. Because we're not sure what's bothering us. There's a certain anxiety. And sometimes, sometimes the prayer without words is, and that's the point of, sometimes music does this, it connects us to a different part of ourselves. Sometimes we can't find the words, not because you don't know what's bothering us, but because the words can't fully express it. Many things can't be expressed with words alone. So the shofar has those two dimensions. I would say it has the dimension of we're at the beginning of the ten days of repentance. Of course, it is the beginning of the ten days of repentance. Primarily because the shofar, Yom Trua in the Chumash, Pshat, is an introduction an introduction to what comes afterwards. An introduction to Yom Kippur. And I believe even an introduction to Chag Sukkot. It's a proclamation that the seventh month is here. The holy month, seventh month is here. So the Rosh Chodesh of seventh month is a special Rosh Chodesh, which we call Rosh Hashanah. That, in my view, is the Pshat and the Chumash. So it's, you're already anticipating Yom Kippur. But you're not ready for Yom Kippur yet because you haven't given it the thought. So the shofar is an alarm. It's a call that maybe something's not right, but we don't, haven't figured out yet what's not right. So we have to try to figure it out. In any event, Chana's prayer is interesting. Chana's prayer, it, there are words, but they're not expressed. Right? It's a wordless prayer in the sense, A we see so lips moving, the Chanahim Daberes Alibad says, she's speaking from her heart. She's not voicing anything which of course is what prayer is actually about the words of I'm not saying words aren't important maybe even voicing them is important but at the end of the day the Raman called it service of the heart so the prayer of Chana is the closest thing that we get to a prayer with no words and of course the day of Rosh Hashanah is all about prayers with no words which we call the Shofar so that's another connection yes do you not see any place at all in the personal in her 
second fila, because you were saying, well, you know, you would be thinking it's about childbirth. I was wondering why. To me, I was reading it all. Also, it's about her being vindicated. You know, it's sort of very much like Douglas to Helen. She feels in her own world, she is oppressed and looked down upon as a woman, right. taunted by the other, by Tina. Right. So, I accept that. I accept what you're saying. I think that's a good point. Yeah, totally agree with you. It's not. I, I was emphasizing one as opposed to the other. You're right. What you can. What Dina's saying is that one can read in Hannah's prayer, a kind of vindication. She sees herself as being the God who judges the world, who raises up and lowers and everything. She's one who's been raised up from the depths, right? And she sees herself as being having settled that, and I agree with that. I don't think it's just that because the prayer is ten verses long, and there's a tremendous focus on the way God and it does end with kingship. So I would accept what you say, and I think that's an important point. The text typically don't have only one way to read them, especially the rich text. There are many different, uh, I think, voices and many different uh, themes that emerge. I'm focusing on. This idea. Now, I wanted to mention one last point about Hannah's prayer. Yes. But if her mouth is moving, she has words. We don't know what the words are. That's right. She has what she's speaking. She's, well, we know what the words are. The text tells us what she's actually saying. But I'm saying, looking at it from the outside, which we we watches her mouth. You know, there's probably a critique of him, but he's not perceptive. He doesn't. See, he doesn't see. He means. He means well. He's a is a saintliness to Ailey. I mean, she does give her son over to Ailey. It's not an accident. But she... That's, I want to get back to this, back to this point about seeing and not seeing. The point is this. The person who stands... In, in chapter 1, story of Chana, there are three main characters. The sons of Ailey don't appear at all, actually. They're there as a way of saying, this is what this place is about. There are three characters. There's Chana, there's her husband, Elkanah, and there's Ailey. Of those three, there, there are no bad people in chapter one. Ailey's not a bad person. He's a very sweet person, and he's deeply concerned about the sanctity of the temple, etc. Elkanah is, uh, loves his wife. He's a very pious man. He makes these periodic journeys to the temple. He tries to console his wife. He favors her in some way. Okay, every time he favors her, it makes her life more miserable. That's unintended consequence. And then there's Chana. So the difference between Chana and the other two is not that she's good and they're bad. That's not true. They're all good people. The difference is something completely else. Not good and bad. The difference is perceptive and unperceptive. That's the difference. And to make this point clear, there's a very important point about the story. The story takes place in Shigong. Shiloh is governed by Chafni and Pinchas. Shiloh does not appear. This is the first chapter of the book. But what's important to remember is that the books presumably have an order to them themselves. In other words, there's a story that appears before chapter 1, which is the last chapter of the previous book. And the last chapter of the previous book clearly is related to the first chapter of this book because the last chapter of the previous book and the last verse 
in those, in those days there was no king. Everybody did whatever they wanted. And the last story, the last story of last book is about the concubine of Giva. Concubine of Giva is a three chapter little brutal little story about a man he's no but in his own right this guy but it doesn't matter he, he has a wife who runs away from him and then he, he re- brings her back home tries to on the way back home he decides to stop off in a town called Giva big mistake terrible place like Sodom and they demand that he be, uh, be sent out to them one man in the, one, one, one man in the town takes him in stranger himself and this guy takes his wife slash concubine and throws it to the mob. In the morning, she's on the door, doorstep there. She's dead. He doesn't seem to know that or care. He takes her body, goes back home. He sees she's been raped and murdered. And he ch- chops her body up into 12 pieces and sends it throughout Israel. Look what terrible thing happened. So there's this town of Giva Benjaminites. So there's a civil war between Benjamin and the other tribes. And three wars, Benjamin's almost annihilated. But then the people have uh, people have Kharata. The people who are disturbed, the tribe of Benjamin will die because not only did they kill the men, they killed the women too. And not only that, they all swore that no man will allow his daughter to marry a Benjaminite. So end of Benjamin. They appeal to what are they going to do about it? So first they have one solution, but they still so they go to the elders, Zikanim, the elders, the sages. So the sages say the following: This is the last end of the book. There is a festival in Shiloh, miyamim yamima. Of course, the book of Shmuel. Maybe it's the same writer. I don't know. Could be. Believe me. There's a festival in Shiloh, miyamim yamima. That's chapter. 21 verse 19 it's six verses from the end of the book and they give the directions how to get there you take a left turn route 17 go this way that way right the directions and they command the Benjaminites here's what you got to do hide in the vineyards it sounds like a summer sounds like actually Tuba'av it sounds like because the, gra- the harvest season for the grapes is the, in the middle of the summer. Hide out in the vineyards. And when the girls go, right? Yeah. The girls go to dance during this festival. They're dancing in the vineyards. So what you do is kidnap them. Each one kidnap one of these young women, take them back home. And then, if anybody says to us, in a second, didn't you swear that your daughter couldn't marry a Benjaminite? And we'll say to them, we didn't give them to the Benjaminites. The Benjaminites kidnapped them. Okay. So that's what happens. So the girls go out to dance in the vineyards in Shigo. What is Shigo? The temple. The courtyards of the temple. They're dancing in the vineyards. The Benjaminites are hiding out, as the Israelites instructed them to do. And they grab... Each one grabs one of these dancing women. Asher Gazalu, they steal them by force. Everybody goes back home. And the last verse, in those days there's no king. 
everybody did whatever they want. So what is Shiloh? How is Shiloh described? It's the place, they went to war because of the abuse of one woman, and the Zakanim have a solution to the problem, abuse thousands. Right? Steal thousands of them. There's no king. Shiloh is the place, that's the point. The leading story to Shiloh, it's a place of total corruption. People take things by force, right? Exactly what Chana rails against, taking by force. That's what she was about. Elkanah goes there, miyamim yamima. He's one of those guys going miyamim yamima to bow down, to sacrifice. He likes it. It's a great place. Love it. You know what I mean? He sacrifices. He and Eli, the high priest, he's very concerned about the sanctity of Shiloh. Someone's praying there. Maybe she's drunk, right? Can't have drunken people in the temple. It is forbidden. But mass kidnappings in the temple, that seems to be okay. <laughs> Here's the point. It's a very simple point. Hanan walks in, takes one look, and says to God, we need a new leader here. We need a new temple here. That's, that's what your prayer is. And the question we have to ask ourselves is a very simple question. How come she sees it? Husband's a nice guy. Sweetheart. Ailey. Why don't they see it, actually? Isn't it obvious? God hates you. God is so angry, God is even talking. God, does, God warns Eli Eli in chapter 2. He speaks to his sons, but they didn't listen. It says, for God wanted to kill them. It's a very striking language. God, God wants to destroy Shiloh. God will destroy Shiloh. God hates Shiloh. It's obvious. Total corruption. How come no one sees it? This is a very important point. It works for them, it's too cynical. You're very getting cynical in your old age, though. <laughs> I mean, you're right, but... No one sees it as sacred. You're beyond leader. Nobody ever sees it, here's the point. No one sees it because, as Zell says, it works for them, which is... But it's more subtle than that. No one sees it because people don't want to see it. Because if you actually see something, you have to do something about it. So we train ourselves not to see. All of us train ourselves not to see. Because if we really saw... Because we're vested in not seeing. Vested because we have a job or a family or a community or what would my great-grandmother say if I did something? There are a million reasons not to see things. So we don't see it. But who actually does see? The book of, story of Chana's introduction to the book of Shemuel, which is all about kingship. And the point of the king and the critique, among others, in the book of Shemuel about the king is the king will not see, actually. King David is confronted with the story of Bathsheba. He has no idea he did anything wrong until he's given a parable. What the parable does is takes it, his, takes it away from himself and objectifies it. It's not somebody else. Oh, what a terrible person. What a, what, a, what a cruel person. Who would do such a terrible... Kill with my own hands, he says. You should pay many times. I swear you should die. It's you. How could David not see that? But we don't see it. Who sees, actually? The only person who can see is someone who is divested. Someone who resides on the margins. Those people can actually see. They have the ability to see. Because what do they care? They're on the margins. So, the book of Samuel has very few heroes in it. That is to say, almost no one escapes unscathed from the writer of Sefer Shmuel. One of the few is Chana, actually. 
And Chana is in a perfect position to see everything. A woman, a childless woman, whose husband has given up on her, on her, on her, on her dreams. Everybody around her has no understanding of who she actually is. A high priest who's a sweet guy thinks she's a drunkard. Perfect candidate. So she can see everything. Stands on the model. So prayer is about then, and not just that, not just does she see, but she has another quality which is very important for prayer. And that is, she actually imagines a very different world. It's very hard for us to do, to imagine that things could be different. Because we're so tied to the way things are. And I don't mean tied to bad things. It can be tied to a lot of things, actually, which, which don't allow you to imagine otherwise. Um, yes? So you were saying that that's the theme of Rosh Hashanah that is um, what, what that, that we want to go over in the Yes, I'm so saying that see things differently. Though. Yes, I'm saying that I'm saying that's what prayer is actually. I'm saying that prayer at its core, in my view, is imagining a different world. In order to imagine a different world, we have to put ourselves in a place which, in which we divest ourselves from all kinds of other things. Easier said than done, of course. Maybe it's virtually impossible. But the idea of putting yourself on the, putting yourself on the margins, which is not a comfortable place to be, not to be, you know, is necessary if you're going to imagine. Because if you're happy the way things are, Akhanan is very happy the way things are. He goes to Shiloh, he travels there, he's serving God, he believes, he goes there periodically, he brings sacrifices, he bows down, all the forms of worship that are accepted. I'm not suggesting he's a bad person. What I'm suggesting is he's not a reflective person, which is why in the text, the same man who goes to Shiloh, Miyamim Yamima, okay, is the same guy who brings the sacrifices, who gives his wife an extra portion, and every time he gives the favorite wife an extra portion, and every time he gives Chana the extra portion, the other wife makes her life miserable and she cries and can't even eat the portion. And the next, he does the same thing every year. You ask yourself, what kind of idiot is this guy? But the point is, it's exactly parallel. In other words, the way he deals on a personal level, he goes by the road, he goes by the calendar. He's not saying to himself, one second, this isn't working. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, why are we going to Shiloh to bring sacrifices and rejoice in Shiloh when there's something about the place that's not right? Now, the point is, I'm not saying he knows that the place is corrupt. I'm saying something else. i probably never trying to examine whether or not it's corrupt. He may give him the benefit of the doubt. Who knows? My point is, what's obvious to one person is not obvious to the other person. So I think the idea of prayer is to imagine a different world. I'll end with a, since I last year taught, and maybe this year even will co-teach a class on the Zohar, I'll end with a Kabbalistic formulation of this, which I find very useful. For the Zohar, Zohar deals with these various manifestations of God, these spherot. And there are various linkages between, them, between these spherot. Two of them are interesting. The lowest of the ten is called Malchut, kingship, which is the, the world in which we live. We enter into prayer where we are, which is kingship. Then there's a higher level sphera, which is called Tiferet. Tiferet is not the world in which we live. It's called the, uh, the ideal world.
when you enter into prayer actually you're entering into the world of kingship but you're imagining the world of Tiferet and the, the one who prays occupies that space in between the world as is and the world as it could be and the idea of prayer is to imagine the world that could be in order to do that it's dropping all kinds of preconceptions if you're rooted in the world as it is and you can't imagine the world that it could be you can't imagine a world that's all different because you're connected for whatever reason, many good reasons that prevents us actually from imagining a different world so that's another that's a central, in my view the central feature of Hannah's prayer